Good morning, everybody. How are we? Revelation chapter 3. You'll be studying the church in Sardis this morning. First six verses. If you don't have a Bible, if you want to raise your hand, and Danny will get one to you. Okay, Revelation 3, first six verses. So we're, uh, we're making our way through the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And we see in some, some books of the Bible that God blesses us with, with, uh, with an outline. And we can see, clearly see an outline in the book of Acts. You know, we see Jesus um, telling his followers how they were to be, to be witnesses, witnesses of him, of, of the good news. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and, is, and isn't that exactly what happened? And we see it through the book of Acts. Uh, the gospel went from Jerusalem, it went to Judea, the surrounding areas. Um, then when we come to chapter 8, the gospel starts making its way out into Samaria. And then chapter 10, when we get there, we see how the gospel goes through to the ends of the world, the ends of the earth. And also we see a clear outline in the book of Revelation. We see how the book of Revelation can be broken up into three major divisions. And Jesus tells John to verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. He said, write these things down that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. So John is told to write to the seven churches in Asia, telling them what he has seen. Now, this would be John's experience. Remember the vision he had of Jesus in chapter 1. Those that are, so this is the second section, refer to the events that were taking place in these seven churches at the time when this letter was written. So these were, these were real churches that existed in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. They certainly weren't the only churches in that area. There would have been many, many more. And they were churches that were struggling with, with very, various issues, various problems. And we've seen in chapter 2, and this will continue through uh, chapter 3, Jesus speaking to these churches with the purpose to resolve the problems that they were experiencing. And he does this by introducing um, himself in the descriptives that John used of Jesus in chapter 1. And then the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 22, describe those things that are to take place after this, which is a, a clear reference to future events our future events. And we've seen how Jesus also opens each letter with the statement, he says, I know. So Jesus knew everything that was happening in these churches, just as he knows everything that is happening in this church. He knew the, the, the fierce persecution that some of them were experiencing. He knew their good works. 
And he praises them for that. Well, most of them anyway. But he also knew their failings. He knew what they were doing wrong, and he addresses those. And the consequences that would follow if they refused to take his direction. So the first letter was written to the church in, in Ephesus. And, and from the outside, it looked like the church was doing really well. They were well-established. They were, they were teaching God's word. Um, you know, from our perspective, it would look like an incredible church to be part of. But in reality, we're told that Jesus tells them that you have lost your first love. They lost their passion for the Lord. So Jesus told them to remember, repent, and return to him. That's simple. In his second letter, Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna. And Jesus tells him this was the persecuted church. He tells them that he knew of their tribulation. He knew of their poverty. And the suffering that they were experiencing at the hands of those who hated the truth. He also reminded them that death was not the end because many of them were losing their life for their faith. And we saw how he promised resurrection and eternal life. The third letter is written to the church in Pergamos. Jesus warned about them about compromising their faith, compromising the truth. And again, he tells them to repent or he would come and use his word against them. The fourth letter which, letter which we studied last week was the church in Tyathea. And, and they had brought into the church pagan practices. Now remember, these people were living in a, a pagan society. Again, Jesus tells them to repent, to, to, uh, to turn from what they were doing, or else he would bring upon them tribulation. Now this morning we'll be studying what Jesus has to say to the church in Sardis. And as you can see from the map, we have two more to do. So this is the fifth of seven letters. And the issue that, that plagued this church was spiritual apathy, spiritual laziness. It was also a church that was filled with people who were not saved, people who did not know Jesus, but were but they thought they did. You know, they, they were serving in the church, they thought they were believers, but they weren't. They were just going through the, the, the motions of religious service. Now, the city itself was located, as you can see from the map, was located some 50 miles east of the city of Smyrna. Now, from the seventh century, you can leave that up there, uh, from the seventh century BC, it was the capital of the Lydian Empire, an area, uh, it was an area that was rich in mineral deposits. Um, they had vast amounts in gold and silver. And because of that, it made Sardis an extremely wealthy, a, a very powerful city empire. Now, its most famous king was a man by the name of Croesus, um, And according to Herodias, who was a Greek historian, um, this king was the first king to mint gold and silver. So we're talking 500 BC here. So it was the, the first ever recorded 
minting of coin. Up until this stage, people would, communities and cities, they would barter. But Croesus would be the last native king of this area because in the 5th century BC, the Persians, they, they took the city. Three more empires ruled this area uh, in the 1st century BC. Uh, the Greeks, as they did the entire area in the 1st century, they handed it over to the Romans. And the Romans invested a lot of money into this city, and it really just cemented it, its position as the capital of, um, the capital of uh, Lydia. Uh, 17 AD, the, a huge earthquake struck the, the entire area, and Sardis was destroyed. The Romans would, would later rebuild the city, but they would not concentrate um, where it was up in the high plateau, but they built down by the local river. Um, so you had, at this stage, when the Romans were ruling the city, you had a lower section of the city and the higher section. The lower section was on the banks of the Petaurus River, and this is where the, the working class, the middle class, lived and, and worked. And the upper town, the higher area that was more fortified, that was reserved for those who could afford to live there. So again, the citizens of this city would have worshipped the usual Greco-Roman gods. And as we have seen, I'm not going to go into it, uh, basically their worship was uh, drunkenness and, and sexual immorality. That was kind of what those guys got up to in the temples. It was a, a, a prosperous, it was a commercial hub, an industrial center. And there would have been a lot of opportunity for people to make money here. So they would have attracted a lot of people from all over the empire. But it was a city that never would ever regain its former glory. And by the time John wrote this letter, Sardis was a city very much in decline. It was losing a lot of business to the port cities like, uh, like Ephesus, Ephesus. Okay, so let's read today's first verse. We're going to throw it up on the wall for you. Verse 1. And Jesus says, okay, so this is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And Jesus tells them, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So as I said earlier, we, we, we've seen in previous letters how Jesus re, uh, reveals himself to these churches in different ways. And he takes the descri descriptions of himself that John wrote in chapter 1. And he uses them. So these are titles that point to certain aspects of his character that these individual churches had forgotten about. So let's look at the first description here to the church in Sardis that he uses of himself. He said, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Now, John said this, as I said, back in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says in he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So that's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, some people interpret the seven spirits as being the seven angels of chapter 8 and 9. 
angels who would blow the seven trumpets to announce the coming judgments. Now, the issue that I have with this interpretation is that Scripture only ever points to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a source of grace and peace. So this phrase, the seven spirits of God, I believe, now maybe sometime in the future I might, I might change my interpretation of it, but at the moment I, I believe it refers to the Holy Spirit. So what, what leads me to that conclusion? So what you do in Scripture is you have to ask yourself, where else do we see this description of the Holy Spirit as being described as the seven spirits? Where do we see those characteristics elsewhere in God's Word? And that leads us to the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. And I'll read it out to you guys. No need to go there. And it says, There, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord... So here's the first of the seven. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of wisdom, two. And understanding, three. And the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So here we clearly see one spirit with seven characteristics. Descriptions that speak of his perfection and his completion. And there are certainly descriptions that point to our need. You know, his spirit, his wisdom, understanding, counsel, the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the knowledge and the reverence of God. You know, I need all those things as a believer. And we as a fellowship of believers, as a church, we all need these things. So look at verse 1 again. So what about the seven stars? We are told in verse 20. So again, what I just did there, I use scripture to prove scripture. That's, it, it really is, you know, it, 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 it's quite simple. Now, the seven stars. We are told in verse 20 of chapter 1 that these seven stars, so we're actually told in Revelation by John that these seven stars refer to the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, within this context, the context in which John is speaking, it refers to the pastor of the church. So we see here in verse 1 how Jesus introduces himself as the one who works in his church through the Holy Spirit and also through the pastor or pastors of the church. And this in turn points to the condition, the problem that was in Sardis. They no longer look to the Holy Spirit. They no longer repent. Uh, relied upon him. They no longer looked to him to work in and through their lives. And as for the pastor, he was acting as if the church belonged to him. He saw himself as the master and, and, and not the servant, as he really was. He was a servant of God. In fact, that's what the word minister means. It means servant. And then Jesus says at the very end of verse 1, if you want to look, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. And it's interesting that Jesus, he totally skips um, the usual commendations that he gave to the other churches. They're nowhere to be found. So straight away, he speaks about his concerns for this church. And we see how they had an exceptional reputation. But it was a reputation did, that did not match the reality. From the outside, they were, I guess a, you could say, a, a picture of what a church should look like. And if you were right to visit Sardis back in the first century, we would come away thinking that, yeah, they, they have everything sorted there. But from a divine perspective, they were dead. You see, they had become so comfortable in their ministry that they became lazy. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had begun to rely so heavily upon their, their own experience within ministry, their, their own intellect, that any dependence upon God that they once ha might have had, it was gone. It had vanished. They were just, you could call it a, a business almost. And I'm sure they had all the different ministries and they said all the right things. You know, Jesus doesn't mention false doctrine here, but, but look, God wasn't in this. If you were to ask the average pagan citizen of Sardis what they thought of, the, of these Christians, they probably would have described them as nice, respectable people who didn't really put in or out on anyone, and there lied the problem. They were shadows within their own community. And it's interesting that there, there, there's no mention of persecution against this church. Why would Satan bother? Why would he waste his effort? They were asleep. They kept themselves to themselves, so they were certainly no threat to his kingdom. Yet despite their, their, their desperate condition, Jesus, he still reaches out to this church. And in a demonstration of such an incredible grace, if you look at verse 5, he says, the one who conquers. Now in the King James, it says, it, it says, the one who overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments. So what does it mean to overcome? It means to give your life to Jesus. It's to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I just love this. It just, it, it really points to the Lord's amazing grace, doesn't it? That no one is too far gone for God's grace. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done in your past. God can take anybody and use them for his glory. And I love what, the prophet Joel told, um, told the nation of Israel, and if you know your Old Testament, it was, you know, Israel, they just kept walking away from God. No matter what he did for them, they always turned their back on him. And we see God speaking through the prophet Joel, 
and he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That is the God we serve. We all make mistakes. As believers, we sometimes like to play in the mud, but we don't stay there. We don't stay there. God is gracious, and, and never, ever forget that. Never forget it. So now in verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives them instructions as to what to do. Simple, straightforward steps, five in total, that would lead them to revival, to, to spiritual restoration. So even though things were, were bad in Sardis, they certainly weren't hopeless. So let's look at verse 2. So he tells them they were asleep. So he tells them, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. <clears throat> so first of all, the first step is quite simple. It's they needed to wake up to what was happening within their church. See, they had to do that. That's the first step, because without doing that, they would, they, they would not recognize their own spiritual need. So they had to do that to take the first step in addressing their problem. Secondly, the believers within this church needed to strengthen the things that remained. So they were to rescue anything worth rescuing. But for those things, those works that were not of God, they were, stop doing them. Get rid of them. They're useless. They're incomplete because God was not, is not in them. And church, this is why it's so important that we examine the reasons why we serve the Lord. Because there's a danger that our service may become some form of, of self-promoting, self-seeking um, mission. You know, it just comes from this arrogant heart where, look at me, look how wonderful I am, look what I'm doing for God. He would, he would be lost without me. You know, it, it's, it's the type of service where you look to see if people are watching. And when they're watching, you put the big show on so that others may think that you are a wonderful person. People might not see your heart, but Jesus clearly, he sees, he knows what is your motivation to serve him. Therefore, our motivation must come from a heart that loves him, that loves him. Lord, I love you. And I'm going to serve you because of what you've done for me. That's where our service must come from. And that is what makes our works complete before God. It's interesting. So you could work in whatever. You could work in ministry all your life. And none of it will count because because your heart is not in it. It's not coming from a place where you're serving God but yourself. And I know it's in my work. I have to continually, it's, it's like daily, examine my heart. 
Am I standing up here for my interests, for my uh, glorification, or for God's? You know, when I, when I scrub the toilets on a Wednesday, am I there, well, you know, grinding my teeth? Oh, if the church only knew what I do on a Wednesday. <laughs> That's not serving God from a good heart, is it? But we can so easily fall into that trap I do clean the toilets on Wednesday. But not only were they to be watchful, not only do we have to be watchful of our hearts, we need to strengthen that which is good, that which remained. Jesus now commands them to remember, verse 3. He says, remember, <coughs> excuse me, he said, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So here, the third step was to remember the things that they once did. Remember when your church was different. Remember how you first received and heard the word of God. And this is the very same thing that Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So Jesus is telling the church in Sardis, he says, instead of believing that everything is okay, that everything is wonderful, that it's going great, you need to wake up. So they needed to snap out of their spiritual complacency. They needed to go back to the truth, back to where they were when they first accepted the Lord as their Savior. Back to when they used to study God's Word, when they used to worship God when they used to depend on the Holy Spirit, when they used to spend time in prayer, and when they used to share their faith. Because some of them, and maybe some of us here this morning, have stopped doing that. This church needed to return to the truth of God's word, back to the gospel message, back to the teachings of the apostles. And they would have had the books of the, Old Te the, the New Testament. They knew God's word. They couldn't claim ignorance. The word was being taught, even though the pastor had an attitude. They needed to live God's word out in their lives. And the f this was the fourth step. Live the word out. We saw in our recent study of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.27, he said to him, he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said the same thing to the church in Ephesus. He urged them to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Ephesians 4.1. We must be living our lives in a way that is con con consistent with the good news. Our external actions have to mirror 
the fact that we are a new creation in Christ. So if you're a Christian, why aren't you living like one? That is what Jesus is asking them in Sardis. And then finally, Jesus tells them that they needed to repent. They needed to confess and turn away from their sin. But then he warns them. <clears throat> he tells them, if you do not follow these steps, if you do not do what I've commanded you to do, look at verse, the end of verse 3. He says, I will come like a thief. And you will not know the hour I will come against you. Now, the church in Sardis, they would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to here. Because they knew the history of their city. It was an ancient city. There was a lot of history. There was a lot of battles. And they would remember how centuries earlier, King, King Croesus who was the, the king of their city. He was described as one of the richest, man, richest men on earth at that time. He built for himself a, a massive city fortification to protect his wealth. Now, Vidya, if you want to throw it up. <coughs> so that mountain is the fortress. He built a fortress on top of that. It's 1,500-foot plateau, and he built it in such a way that it was, you couldn't take it with a normal army. You just couldn't do it. And he was right. In the 5th century, the Persian king Cyrus, you might recall the name from the Old Testament, he, he tried to take the city by the usual way, and he failed. So, so he did what most armies did in those days, is that they lay siege to the city. No food in, no water, and hopefully Sardis was hoping to, to starve them out of it. But then one night, his men, Cyrus's men, saw one of the two soldiers who were on guard duty. So he had two soldiers watching out. That's how confident they were. Two men. And as they were watching these guards, they saw how one of them looked over the wall and his helmet fell off, fell 1,500 feet. And then to their surprise, sometime later, they saw this guard come out from behind the wall, pick up his helmet and go back, on to, the, go back to guard duty. So King Cyrus, he, he had a way now into the city. So the next day, he sent these troops to attack the far side of this structure. And while he did that, it was, it was a distraction. And then he waited for the nightfall, and he sent a handful of men up onto the castle, and they found this door. They found a way in. And the city was taken. You know, King Croesus thought he was secure, but he wasn't. Again, in the second, second century BC, same thing happened again. The Greek armies of Antipas, the great, captured Sardis, and they did it more or less in the same way. The, the citizens of this city had become so confident in, in their defenses that they failed to see that part of the wall was defective, and that's where the Greeks attacked. And again, the city was taken. 
So the church in Sardis became so confident in their own abilities that they had fallen asleep. They had become complacent. And if they didn't take the steps for to, of revival, Jesus promises that he would come and destroy the church. So Jesus is interesting. He reaches back into their history, reminds them of their past, and then he warns them. If you don't wake up, if you are not watchful, I will come in judgment against you. But all wasn't lost. There was still hope. Because there still remain within this church a faithful few. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, yet you still... You, st you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." So these faithful few, they were keeping watch. They were examining themselves, checking to see if there was sin in their lives. And Jesus promises them that they would walk with him in white. And the white garments are symbolic of righteousness. And this also points to the fact that, that many within this church, they weren't even believers. But for all those who did believe, all those who did overcome, Jesus promises them, he says, look, your name will never be blotted out from the book of life. So church, we, we need to be watchful. Peter told the church to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Seeking someone to devour. And faith, faith is the ultimate weapon to blunt the enemy's attack. <clears throat> what does faith do? It believes in God's word. Faith believes in God's promises despite what this world might tell us. But where do we get such a faith? Where do we find it? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he says, faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And isn't that something that the majority in Sardis failed to do? They, be, they became indifferent, uninterested in God's word. <clears throat> they forgot what God had called them to do. And yeah, and I'm sure they had lots and lots of excuses. I'm sure they were very gracious towards themselves. Reasons to as why the gospel wasn't affecting their lives and why the gospel wasn't affecting the, the pagan community that surrounded them. Paul wrote, and I absolutely love his heart in this section of scripture. He writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. As for me, <clears throat> it really does show this man's heart. Paul's sorrow, his anguish for Israel was so great that he was willing to, to give away, to sacrifice his own salvation if his own people would just turn to Jesus. Do you feel anything like that for the lost people of this city? It's a question I have to ask myself as well. Do you feel that that sense of, of urgency, an urgency that comes from knowing that people are perishing? Family members, friends, our neighbors, work colleagues, people you pass on the street? Or is it that you're somehow embarrassed, too concerned about what people might think of you if you share Jesus with them? Paul, he begged. He begged the church in Rome to offer their lives as a form of a living sacrifice, a living, breathing sacrifice. And this is when you and I ask ourselves on a daily basis, am I prepared to give my all to God, to serve him, to surrender, to, to, to follow his word? But it, it, it doesn't always happen, does it? Because there are times when our service to God begins to cost something. It becomes, it becomes a real sacrifice for us. And sometimes we don't like that, do we? So just like those of Sardis, we, we retreat to a more comfortable position. And now in verse 6, and I'll finish on this. Jesus tells them, he tells them to pay attention. So he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? That's what the Lord is speaking to us this morning. That's what Jesus is asking here right now. If you're not, then you need to wake up. You need to wake up because if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are going to perish. If you are saved, if you are a believer but have lost your, you have lost your joy, your passion, maybe you've become lazy or, or indifferent, a Christian only by name, then, then you need to repent. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, live a life that brings nothing but glory to God. And this is something, guys, that we have to do on a daily basis. On a daily basis, we must examine our hearts, see if our lives measure up to the Word of God. See if we're doing what God has called us to do, to make disciples of all nations. Are we standing under God's word? 
Are we fellowshipping? Amen.